Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back. I don't have an, a fully decorated office at the moment, so if the sound's a little bit different than usual, obviously my background's a little bit different if you're watching on YouTube for this intro, but it should be up, it's just very echoey um, within the next few weeks when there's a bit more furniture in there, but hope it's not too distracting. So today we've got a really interesting subject with a really amazing guest. So this person I really look up to in the health space, it's Beth O'Hara. And she's going to share more about her journey, her health journey, and how she struggled with mast cell activation syndrome, which is something that I suspect for myself. And it's when you hear about the symptoms, it's so common. And she gives a statistic. Um, and this is probably something that you've never heard of before, unless you've been following a bit about my journey. But if you know this stuff, like I'm sure you can see it in other people when you hear about their story or... Um, just certain symptoms can be linked to this as well. So it's very important and it's a bit of an in-depth, sciencey podcast episode, but I personally got so much out of this and I just know it's going to be useful for so many of you listening. So Beth O'Hara is a functional naturopath specializing in chronic complex immune conditions related to mast cell activation syndrome. That's also known as MCAS and histamine intolerance. She is the founder and owner of Mass Cell 360, a functional naturopathic practice designed to look at all factors surrounding health conditions, genetic, epigenetic, biochemical, physiological, environmental and emotional, which is what every client really needs, in my opinion. She was she designed Mass Cell 360 to be the, to be the kind of practice she was for when she was severely ill with Things like the mast cell activation syndrome, histamine intolerance, neural inflammation, Lyme disease, mold, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome. And her mission today is to be a guiding light for others with these conditions and those related conditions in their healing journey. Through her mast cell 360 root cause process, she discovers the unique root factors affecting each of her clients' health issues, building personalized, effective roadmaps for healing. She holds a doctorate in functional naturopathy, a master's degree in marriage and family counselling, and a bachelor's degree in physiological psychology. She's certified in functional genomic analysis, which is something that we're going to be talking about, and is a research advisor for the Nutrigenetic Research Institute. She presents at the functional medicine conferences on mast cell activation syndrome, history and intolerance, as well as the use of genetics and biochemistry in addressing chronic health issues. So you can see she really knows her stuff 
and we really just scratched the surface in this episode that I wanted to make sure it's easy to understand, easy to follow. But I want to start off with my experience with genetic review. So I actually worked with Beth on my own genetics. And some of these things, again, you're probably not going to understand in too much detail, but just from my knowledge and what I've been learning over the past few years, both personal experience and in scientific research, it makes total sense now that Beth has gone with me through some of my genetic report. Genetics aren't everything. So this is just showing my predispositions. And obviously my health has been a bit of a struggle these past few years. And this totally makes sense now that I know what's going on and maybe what my genetic weak links or predispositions are. So in gut health, she said a really significant marker that she came across was um, the gluten intolerance gene. So I know that I have the HLA genes, but there's another one called KIAA1109. And this is um, associated with celiac disease risk. And they have a double variant here. So again, quite significant and makes sense just with me growing up, eating a lot of gluten, cutting it out. And now whenever I get exposed to it, I do have a significant reaction. I have a family of autoimmunity. So my mum's side, Hashimoto's, thyroid issues. My dad's side, the psoriasis. Um, so I am at risk. So I just choose, I'm going to choose long-term to not eat gluten just because I am at risk of developing celiac if I was to continue eating it. And I just don't believe it's a good thing for anyone to be eating really in this modern world. I have the lactose variant. So when you have a genetic SNP, so that's called a single nucleotide polymorphism or like a mutation is another term if I say the word SNP. So I have the lactose variant, meaning that I'm one of those people who my genes are a little bit weird. So I can tolerate gluten, I can tolerate dairy, sorry, in adulthood. But at the moment, my gut and my immune system's a little bit on overdrive. So I may be fine with the lactose. Some people have lactose intolerance who don't have this gene um, issue. I have it, so I could probably digest dairy well, but it would still make me react because of the casein and the way in these inflammatory proteins that are in there. There are some issues in the gut that can lead to histamine intolerance, because that's really why I did the test in the first place, just to see if there's any particular genes or SNPs that were making me more likely to have issues with histamine. There's one in particular called DAO that most people are familiar with that breaks down histamine in the gut. I don't have any major SNPs in that gene, but that doesn't mean to say that the gene isn't affected. So having inflammation and mold issues and gut problems, this can affect your DAO um, enzyme, whether you have a gene variant or not. So I really think that that is what's going on. We also looked at the food sensitivity category and there's some kits, they're called kit genes, so K-I-T. And this means that you're more, more likely to have more mast cells um, in the body. No major histamine gene issues. So this is telling me hopefully it's not going to be a long-term thing once I address these root causes, which I'm currently doing. And that's a really good sign that it's not something genetically that I need to be mindful of long-term, hopefully. So my issues are more likely just from the environment at the moment. And there are some genes for oxalate metabolism. Oxalates are, we mentioned it in this episode, but they can be a problem for people with 
urinary tract issues and joint pain and histamine and mast cell issues, but all of mine were fine. But again, that doesn't mean to say that I don't have an issue with oxalates. I, I don't think I do. I have more issues with histamines and salicylates, which I talk about in the episode. But um, you can still have issues with oxalates even without the genes. I have some mutations or SNPs for joint hypermobility, which I knew I kind of figured out myself for a while. I really had issues with joint pain in my knees. And it was when I couldn't exercise much, so I was doing a ton of yoga. And I'd, I've always been pretty flexible, so I, I could do the splits and I could like bend forward really, you know, the, the straight leg um, pose where you can bend over and touch your toes. I was really great at that, but over time it was really starting to pull on my ligaments and cause a ton of joint pain. And I had no idea what was causing it for a while. I thought it was a food sensitivity. And then I went to a practitioner and just asked her. And within two minutes of making me do a few like um, thumb bends backwards and stretching out my arms, she was like, you have joint, joint hypermobility. It's the yoga you need to stop or really reduce and start strength training. Um, and within a couple of weeks, it went back to normal. So I always suspected it, like I can bend my thumb back um, to my wrist and when my arms are straight and my legs are straight, they kind of curve backwards a little bit. This can be genetic, obviously, but having issues like Lyme and mold, it can affect the, um, the structure of your cartilage, hyaluronic acid, production um so it can make you more flexible and that's why people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome EDS can also it's very common in those conditions too there's a whole section on iron metabolism um, because it's really important in these types of conditions to make sure your iron isn't too high or too low I've had issues with both in the past so when I was younger um, a few years back I'd be more prone to low iron low ferritin hair loss those types of things but since I addressed that, probably like five, six years ago, um, since then, I've always lent on the high normal iron. So this is why recently I've got rid of my cast iron pans, because when I was getting tests, my, my iron um, storage and my serum iron was always on the high end of normal, which isn't great because iron is a pro-oxidant, meaning that it can cause oxidative stress, inflammation in the body. As women, we're less likely to have this issue because we have our monthly bleed. Men are at much higher risk of things like hemochromatosis, which is a iron storage disease. But high iron can both cause and be as a result of inflammation and infection in the body. So um, really want to make sure that I work on that. So there's a few things that I had that were quite rare, meaning that iron gets trapped in the cell. Um, and I have issues with iron recycling. I have issues with iron transport in the small intestine. And I've seen this on blood work many times as well throughout the years. There's a marker on there called transferrin. And this is representing that. And it's always been on the low end of normal whenever I've had it done. Um, and then additional nutrients. So I really need to be careful or mindful of my vitamin D because I have many SNPs in VDR, vitamin D receptors. And just like a lot of them were just flagged up red. We know that vitamin D is involved in immune regularity, hormone balance, bone health, mood. So sunlight is always the best option, but I need to check regularly, work with my mineral patterns as well, because just supplementing vitamin D without knowing what you're doing 
it can actually lead to high calcium levels in the system. Methylation was also looked at as well. And a significant SNP that I have in this area is COMT, which some people have probably heard of. And I have potential issues with folate and B12 transport and absorption, but can't do high levels supplementally because it can trigger histamine mast cell issues and also it can make me more anxious and like over sensitized over alert because of my COMT and that's a SNP that's involved in breakdown of catecholamines and neurotransmitters so simple terms stress hormones and brain chemicals that's it's a double-edged double-edged sword when I'm in the flow when I'm productive when I'm doing stuff that I love I can work for hours on end but if something stresses me out it's like whizzing around in my mind all the time and I need to like decompress and wind down then we looked at energy and antioxidant status i have multiple SNPs or mutations in a pathway called nrf2 um i think it's nuclear factor i can't remember but this is how your body creates antioxidants like glutathione so i have more SNPs than the average person and it's a double whammy because mold in particular blocks nrf2 production so glutathione is therefore low i've done multiple tests on organic acid testing dutch testing and that's always shown that my glutathione has been low in recent years i have a higher need for nad which is an energy molecule in the body it's um, linked to vitamin b3 as well and just the way that my body recycles and detoxes NAD is something that I need to be mindful of. I have a double variant, so two SNPs, uh, two copies of the genes from my parents on the gene that produces glycine. This is important as well because glycine is involved in phase two liver detoxification, particularly of things like salicylates. So one of my biggest food triggers is salicylates, which are found in like coconut and berries the healthy um, vibrant colorful fruits and veggies unfortunately so i had issues with that where it would build up and i'd get like red flush skin um, coughing chest pain wheeziness and uh, sleep issues and i require more um i require more glycine because of that you can get glycine naturally from food but unfortunately i can't tolerate a lot of the bone broths and things like that collagen gelatin which is usually what provides your glycine so I have SNPs in my autophagy, some of my autophagy genes, which is the cellular renewal, cellular cleanup side of things. That's mainly what people do intermittent fasting for. So my body is just less able to do some of those things. So I really need to support that and keep inflammation and oxidative stress quite low in the body. My liver detoxification um, pathways genetically look pretty good, but that's just another reason not just to treat the genes because there's people with absolutely amazing genetics, but their health is terrible and then vice versa. So although my genetics for liver detoxification are mostly fine, my liver is a little bit screwed up right now because of particularly the mold. And the pathway that has most significant issues is sulfation which i also really suspected and this is involved in the production of something called heparin sulfate and if you go back to listen to the podcast i did with stephanie seneff she talked all about the benefits of sulfate so i'm probably lacking in that that's a compound that stabilizes mast cells it's involved in 
kind of gut lining integrity and sulfation is involved in the detoxification of histamines and salicylates. And then last few now, so phase three detoxification, which involves bile acids. I'll be doing an upcoming episode on this um, with Kelly Hold Holderman. So I have a potential issue with bile acids. Again, always suspected this back in the day when I was still eating gluten and I wasn't really in the health world. I would often have light colored stools, so like clay colored, um, a little bit like light yellowy type colored stools on occasion. And whenever I take bile supporting things at the start, things like taurine, it would cause like major diarrhea because I was doing too much too quickly. I didn't really know what I was doing. And in the past as well, in the past year or so, I've tested my cholesterol and it's been high and you need, you need this phase three and um, sulfate, not sulfate, bile acids to convert cholesterol to your hormones. So if I don't have enough, then the cholesterol builds up, but it's got nothing to convert into. High cholesterol can also be due to inflammation and low thyroid. I'm also potentially sensitive and need to be mindful of benzenes and cigarette smoke. That rings true as well, because I remember as a child, my grandma used to smoke and I remember being on holiday with her and she was smoking out the window and I literally just was sick everywhere and like ran through the whole hotel trying to get to a bathroom when there was a bathroom right next door. It's a funny story. And she said, I have the ideal genotype to prevent Alzheimer's, which is good but I made a note on my form to her that my um, grandma on my dad's side had Alzheimer's and recently passed away last year, but that was very lifestyle driven. So lots of sugar, bad diet. So I'm not afraid of that. I know that diet and lifestyle can really influence it. And then she said, I have some snips on my oxytocin gene. Oxytocin is like the love relationship, feel good connection hormone. And oxytocin can help with mast cell stabilization. Mast cells are what release histamine. But she said this makes people more empathetic, which is interesting. And I need to work on my BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, involved in brain health, obviously, memory, mood, all of that. Um, so she recommended some supplements and things as well. So that's just a little overview. Um, apologies if you were not interested in that, but I know that some of you will be. And I'm not sure if Beth is doing this for like general members of the public. I did have to wait around two months for this report, but she was aware that obviously I'm a practitioner and I've been working on my health and just wanted some additional information. So if you're just starting out and you're not a practitioner, then you probably need to work with a practitioner alongside of it and not just get the genetic review because no recommendations really are going to be made um, to supplements and lifestyle if you're just starting off, unfortunately. And as I said, this made total sense to me. I'm glad that I did it. And I've not been formally diagnosed with mass cell activation syndrome, but I've had multiple practitioners say that it's likely the case just with my symptoms and reactivity. So um, she'll be talking about that, how to get diagnosed. I'll be uploading or releasing two podcast episodes within the next few weeks on my mold journey. So this will all make sense. You're like, oh, I didn't know you're like dealing with all this stuff. I will spill my guts and tell you everything in those episodes. The first one I recorded back in February, but I'm going to record a little intro as well about how things have changed the past few months. So I also potentially have issues with Lyme that is mentioned as well. 
and yeah I don't want to leave you waiting too much longer but I think you'll probably want to take notes during this episode because it's just jam-packed with information I really resonate with Beth and her story and I know that some of you will as well and even if you don't struggle with this I think it's great if you can educate yourself and share this on with other people that you may know who are struggling with this as well. So let's get into the podcast. I won't leave you waiting any longer. Here's my interview with Beth O'Hara. So Beth, I find your story, your personal health journey, very inspiring. I've dealt with similar things. I don't think to the extreme that you did, because I know that you were quite sick at one point. But for those who may not be familiar, could you put Um, start off by telling us a bit about your health story and how you got to where you're at today. Sure. And I'm so uh, grateful and appreciative that um, we can come together like this today. And thank you for having me on. I was horrifically ill. And my major mission in life is to help other people that have these conditions get well faster and hopefully with way less money than it cost me to get. So I, you know, I was never really well as a child and I grew up in an old farmhouse. We didn't know way out in the country. We didn't know it was full of toxic mold that would have been helpful, but I'm in my forties. People didn't talk about mold really back then and really not in a rural area. I was playing outside all the time. I got bitten by ticks all the time. So I started having these you know, I had odd things early on, but then I started having these really strange things. Like when, if you grow up in the country, you grow lots of green beans and you have to pick them and can them. And so you're picking like bushels and bushels of beans. And when I would be helping to snap them, I would break out in hives head to toe. I was always really tired as a kid. Um, I was clawing my eyes all the time and scratching my skin, very itchy. I had a lot of brain inflammation. I had a brain injury when I was nine. I got hit, kicked in the head by a horse. So that didn't help matters. And then really severe insomnia started then. And I started having really bad anxiety, but I was still able to push through. And I went on to college and I was just a hundred percent focused on going to medical school. That was my, just my dream in life. And I wanted to do that from the time I was six years old. I decided that that's what I was going to do. And I, I did very well in college and I had some full scholarship offers to medical school, but my health crashed so severely in my junior year of college that I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't take morning classes. And I just finished out my bachelor's degree having no idea what else I was going to do. So instead of becoming a physician, I became a chronically ill patient. And uh, I went on these other routes. So I became a computer programmer because that fell on my lap and a yoga therapist. So I did those at the same time. And then I went on this whole other route trying to reclaim my health. And I saw so many practitioners. I totaled up. At one point, I'd seen over 50 different types of healthcare practitioners and or 50 different individuals and no one knew what to do with me so over and over i was told either i just i believe you but i don't know what to do for you and you're the most severe person in my clinic i have no idea where we go and i really appreciated their candor but that's not what you want to hear from a healthcare practitioner 
or their worst ones who were really attached to their own egos couldn't and couldn't say I don't know told me well your labs are all normal this is obviously in your head and there's something you're getting out of being sick and you're attached to being sick and I was told that so often that I finally started to believe it and I did a ton of emotional healing and spiritual healing work and got into a system called the Enneagram and ended up teaching that around the world and in the meantime my health just kept deteriorating and um, eventually I was on a cane and I could barely walk even to the bathroom and I had been fairly athletic I would do three-hour yoga practices and bicycle rides for 50 miles and um, it was a huge loss to to lose my ability to move to lose my mobility and I the pain was excruciating. I really didn't sleep for years. People say you can't go more than two weeks without sleeping, and that's not true. And I have a lot of um, people I've met who have been in similar circumstances. And I became bedridden and debilitated to where I had a year I couldn't work, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know where else to go um, other than I wasn't going to give up. There were days I wanted to give up, and there were days at a time I would give up, but I never permanently gave up. And kind of the darkest day, which also became the turning point, was um, I had been working with the top functional medicine practitioner in my area. And this was before we had online, before we had telehealth and all these kinds of things. So you had to find somebody close to you or you had to travel. I wasn't in great shape to travel. So um, we'd worked together for about three years and everything we tried made me worse. At least he believed me, you know, he didn't tell me I was crazy, but we tried L-glutamine to heal my gut and it made me anxious. Curcumin made me anxious and more inflamed. Um, all the medications we tried made me worse. And I'd figured out at that point I had mast cell activation syndrome and I'd known before then I had histamine intolerance. So reducing my histamines made a difference but it didn't fix everything. And then I figured I had oxalate issues and that's what was going on with my joints and the pain and fibromyalgia pain and all of this. So that made a difference, but I was still sick, still really deeply fatigued. And um, I got online a little group I was in that was started by Yasmina Kellenston, who started um, healing histamine. And it was called Low Histamine Chef back at the beginning. And she, was the first person reporting on mast cell activation syndrome. So it was a very small group of our, us that were the first followers of hers. And many of us were healthcare practitioners in some way or another. And I'd become a health coach at this point. So I was watching all these clients get better and lap me and lap me. And I felt like a hypocrite because I could help them, but I couldn't figure out myself. I couldn't help myself. And um, so I was in, in this little group. And when the functional med medicine practitioner I was working with said, you know, we've tried everything I know to do. I don't know what else to do anymore. And that was devastating. And I remember crying the entire way home because if he didn't know, who knew? And as a health coach, I didn't have enough knowledge at that point to pull myself out. I didn't think so. But I was reading and studying everything I could get my hands on. And I reached out to, to that group that Yasmina started, this little private group with just a few women in it. And um, somebody reached back out and said, run your genetics, and I bet we're going to see some answers. I'll help you step through it. And that was my first introduction. So several years ago, seven years ago, maybe eight. And um, back when 
23andMe was in its early days and we ran the genetics and things started making sense. Why it would, the glutamate didn't work for me, the glutamine. So I had a lot of variants that contribute to high levels of glutamate. And uh, I was trending towards overmethylation and a lot of these different factors that I really understand now, but we we're just putting the pieces together. And back then we just had 60 genetic variants we were looking at. So now we're at over 10,000. But even in those 60, there were a lot of clues. And that's how I started putting together piece by piece, putting my health back together. And it's kind of like if you think about trying to build a 3,000 square foot house with Lego blocks. That's what it was like, just one little piece and then one little piece. And now we have all of these things figured out so that we can build a 3,000 square foot house of somebody's health with modular units, you know, now we understand methylation, we understand the genetic variants, we understand the inflammation, these other pieces. But that really turned my life around. And then learning about mast cell activation syndrome was huge, learning how to address oxalates, mold toxicity. So I had significant mold toxicity, significant gut issues, and um, Lyme, Bartonella, and Babesia. So there's a lot going on there. And I've recovered, you know, about 90%, which is fantastic. And that's amazing for me. I still um, have some exercise intolerance and in that I can't do high intensity. I can't run right now. I'm working on that piece. Um, but I can walk two or three miles and I can walk in high heels. I couldn't walk. I don't wear them much, but I couldn't even walk in anything with a heel before. I couldn't even walk to the bathroom before. So walking two or three miles to me feels like a huge win, a big celebration. And I run this really busy practice and I work more than I would like, but I work 60 hours a week. And that's um, a, a big change from being bedridden. And when I tell this story, I always feel like I'm telling it, I'm talking about someone else's life because it was such a different life. That's so inspiring. And I can relate to so many of the things, even like the glutamine and the curcumin and the exact same. I would get um, migraines and anxiety and insomnia from the L-glutamine. I was taking like a heat teaspoon every night. Like I was reading, was meant to heal my gut. Um, I was eating all of the fermented foods and the bone broth and meal prepping. So I was cooking chicken on a Monday, eating it right through till the end of the week. And I was wondering why my scalp was on fire. My skin was terrible. I felt so anxious. I originally thought I was detoxing. So that's how, yeah, how right. crazy it seemed. Like I was like, yeah, I'm purging. My skin's getting better. I just need to push through it. And I was right. the worst I'd ever been. Right. Well, and there, you know, there's so much online about if you have this detox reaction, you should push through. One of the things I really advocate for, especially when people think they might have mast cell issues, is to not do that. So if we have increase in symptoms and they're, they're mild for a couple of days and then they die down, that's okay. But if we have a lot of symptoms from bringing on board a new supplement, then something's not right, something's amiss. So either it's not the right supplement for that person or it's creating um, too quick, it's speeding up detox too fast and we're getting into a toxic state. Or it's killing off pathogens too fast and we're getting into a toxic state. So we gotta, we know now to be really careful. Um, one of the ways I made myself even worse 
was I'm, I, I try everything, I experiment with everything, and I'm the guinea pig before um, I recommend things to my clients. And, you know, 10 years ago, about 15 years ago, I got really into the Western price movement, which is great information if you don't have histamine intolerance or mast cell activation syndrome. So I was doing all these, I was making kombucha, I was making like four different kinds of fermented veggies. I was making um, chicken foot broth. So to get the highest concentration of gelatin, all this stuff that was supposed to heal my joints. Um, but I just was getting worse and worse and worse. The other thing that made me worse, um, that I really caution people about is when I was a child and nobody knew what was going on, I did see a lot of allergists and they put me on a very heavy duty antihistamine and mast cell blockade. And it did help with the symptoms. And sometimes we need these medications short term. So I'm not anti-medication, but, um, and some people, and we'll get into like mastocytosis and some of these things and really severe mast cell activation syndrome may need some medications. And I still take some very tiny doses today because of the brain injury. But um, I was on very high doses for a child and these medications knock out the mast cell response. And the mast cells are there to protect us from pathogens and toxins. So if we just go with this reductionistic approach that the mast cells are overactive, so let's calm the mast cells down, or there's too much histamine, so let's calm the histamine down, and that's all we look at, we just leave the front door of the body wide open for viruses, bacteria, parasites, mold to colonize and take over the body. And I think that's what happened was I think my mast cells were fighting so hard against the molds and the Lyme, the Bartonella, the Babesia, and the SIBO, and all the stuff that I had going on. And then taking these medications, I felt better for a few years, but then it just blew up because those infections just had free reign in the body. So we've got to be careful about that. We've got to make sure that we're dealing with these root causes and these underlying issues, and we can't just use medications to address these things. And there's, like you said, there's a time and a place to manage symptoms so that you're not feeling absolutely terrible, but also working on the root cause at the same time to figure out what's going on. That's really an important point. And what is the difference between histamine intolerance, mast cell activation syndrome and mastocytosis? And what are some of the tests that you've used to determine which one someone has? Yeah, so... Let's talk about the mast cells a little bit more in histamine, so that makes sense. So the mast cells are the frontline defenders of the immune system. And if you cut your finger and you don't clean it out right away and it gets red and puffy, that's the mast cells creating inflammation. And then they signal to the other immune cells to come in and do their work. So they're like the orchestrators of the immune system. They're really critical cells in the body. We can't survive outside of a bubble without mast cells. And they kind of get a bad reputation right now, but the mast cells are essential to manage all of these infections that people are being exposed to, to manage all of these toxins. What happens in mast cell activation syndrome is that we have so much activation happening of the mast cells that they either lose their ability to regulate themselves 
or they're having to respond 24 seven. So if you think about if there was a guard to a castle that had to be on duty 24 seven, never got a break, they'd get a little crazy. Well, from sleep deprivation and overwork, well, the mast cells, the programming can get off. But even beyond that, if there's significant mold colonization or something like this going on, the mast cells are, cannot take a break. They have to stay on duty 24 seven to keep us alive. So we've got mast cell activation syndrome, which is overactivation of the mast cells for whatever reason. Then we have mastocytosis, and this is a more rare, there's lots of different types of mast cell disorders. Most of them are more rare. So mastocytosis is where there are genetically too many mast cells in the body. And there may not even be overactivation, but if just there are too many, then you're going to have re more release of those inflammatory mediators. And these mast cells release histamine, that's the best known mediator, but over 200 different kinds, cytokines, chemokines, all kinds of different signaling molecules. And they're so complex, we're still learning about them, even though they were discovered in the late 1800s. And so while mastocytosis is rare, mast cell activation syndrome is estimated to be affecting between 9 to 17% of the general population, which is a lot. That's about 1 in 10, maybe 1 in 8 people on the planet. And part of that's because our planets become very toxic. We're surrounded by all these electromagnetic fields that stimulate mast cells. There's all these different things going on now. And mastocytosis is going to be more like 1 in 100,000, so, so more rare. In the chronically ill population, mast cell activation syndrome is about 50% or more of the chronically ill population. So if you have chronic infections, if you have chronic toxicity, you're gonna to have mast cell involvement. It's just part of the lay of the land because they're in, those mast cells are in almost all the systems in the body. So mast cell activation syndrome symptoms can be really varied in terms of you can have the classic allergic responses like I did with hives and itching and watery, runny, watery eyes, runny nose. But you can also have things like, I have some people in my practice that don't have any of those allergic symptoms. They have digestive symptoms, they have brain fog, and they have fatigue, and they have mast cell activation. So we've got to look at all of these symptom pieces in terms of the systems in the body. And then we have histamine intolerance. So histamine intolerance is where we just have an issue with histamine. So if we think about it, a lot of people use the metaphor of a sink with a drain. So histamine is going to be produced by certain cells like mast cells. Histamine is going to be consumed in certain foods like spinach and strawberries and pineapple, ground meats, fermented foods, wine, beer. These are all high histamine walnuts and peanuts and cashews. And if we have more histamine in the body, then the histamine degrading enzymes can break down. Think about those histamine degrading enzymes as the drain. And those are things like diamine oxidase, H&MT, which is histamine and methyltransferase. Well, then your sink's going to start to overflow if your drain's not big enough. And it can be because those enzymes aren't working well enough, because there's too much histamine produced or consumed, or both. 
and then things are going to overflow. So people can just have histamine intolerance, although a lot of people with histamine intolerance also have mast cell involvement. And people can have mast cell activation syndrome and not have histamine intolerance. But most of the people that I see have both. And when we have both, we're going to have more significant symptoms. So your other question is, how do you test for these things? Mastocytosis testing is pretty clear. So that's usually checked by tryptase, and that will generally be elevated. And then also they do um, certain kinds of biopsies to check for numbers of mast cells and are there the normal number or, or more. Histamine intolerance, you can check serum diamine oxidase and serum histamine. There is some correlation with serum diamine oxidase, and I do see that, so you can get that as a blood draw, with um, low diamine oxidase levels. There's some questions about it because diamine oxidase is mostly what's produced in the gut, but I do see uh, correlations with histamine intolerance issues in that. We don't have any way to measure the other enzyme I mentioned, the HNMT, but we can look at genetic factors. And HNMT is dependent on methylation, so we can check methylation status and then the methylation markers. But mast cell activation syndrome, it, this just got a diagnostic code in 2016. So it's still considered a new condition in terms of general practitioners understanding. Most practitioners don't have any background or training in it. So I started working with this eight years ago out of a need for survival because I had to when it was still in a theoretical phase and it wasn't accepted even as a diagnosis. But there are now diagnostic criteria. It needs some work because the diagnostic, so what the diagnostic criteria says, you have to have symptoms in two or more systems. So that's pretty clear. And I have a symptom survey on my blog if people wanna go Take that. So you can go to the blog and then there's a little search on the right hand upper side, type in symptom survey. And there's, um, and I developed that symptom survey out of the research that was done on the most common symptoms. And, and then there are blood tests that are recommended, urine tests. And the problem with these is are that these mast cell mediators that are being tested. So these are going to be tests like blood histamine levels, urine histamine levels, prostaglandin levels, interleukin levels. These levels can be up in the blood and then down again within 10 or 15 minutes. So people are often advised to have a lab order in hand and as soon as a flare starts, get to the lab within four hours. Well, that's hard to coordinate. What if the flare starts at midnight? And Or there are offices where they need to get a diagnostic code for insurance purposes. So they have people sit in the office for eight hours and they're testing them every hour on the hour. And some practitioners are recommending that people provoke a flare, which I don't recommend. So I don't, I don't recommend these tests in my own practice. We're not using diagnostics. Um, I mean, we're, we're using biomarkers for sure, but we're not doing diagnosis and we're not doing insurance billing, so we don't have to get it. And I, I don't think that it's good right now. I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think it's missing 90% of people with mast cell activation syndrome. They're getting turned away by immunologists and allergists who say, well, if you don't have elevated histamine or you don't have one of these markers elevated, you can't have this. So I'm going to um, send you off on your way and you must be crazy and it must all be in your head. 
And so we're back into this nasty quagmire that has existed forever. So I go based on symptoms, history, and what are these underlying pieces that people are, are dealing with? And that's, that's what's important in, in the way that I'm working. Yeah, and at first I just thought I had histamine intolerance. I was like, yes, I found my answer. Let's just cut out all of these histamine-rich foods and then I'll be good. But no, I started to develop more sensitivities. I realized salicylates were an issue. Um, recently mold and potentially lime as well as you. So I was thinking, is there any point me even looking into testing further for mast cell activation um, syndrome? Or can I just assume that I have it? So I think I'm just going to assume and work on addressing the root causes um, because the diagnosis and kind of differentiating them too to me it doesn't really make a difference I still have the symptoms so I'm just going to work on that and I will link to the um, post that you just mentioned the symptom questionnaire in the show notes to the episode along with your amazing guide that you have on your website as well with the root causes of um, histamine and mast cell issues which I love and I found really helpful and we're going to go into a little bit of detail on a few of these I'll not cover them all because I do want you to go and grab that guide on um, your website but the first one being food triggers so we've just spoken about histamine and um, these are sadly some of the healthiest foods ever which is the frustrating thing but what about salicylates I don't see that being spoken about much and that was a huge um, factor for me personally Yes, I'm starting to write more about this. Um, one of the reasons I don't start people on a low salicylate diet also is because I'm having people start with lower histamine oxalates and lectins. And then I want to see how things improve at that point. Because when we add the salicylate layer, then we're really limited at that point. And I don't want to limit foods unless we have to. So I start with the biggest three. So again, the histamines we talked about, oxalates, for people who aren't familiar with oxalates, are little structures. They look like, under a microscope, little shards of glass or little razor blades. And they bind up minerals, they lodge in the joints, they lodge in muscles, they um, can scrape the urethra on the way out. They're the major contributors of interstitial cystitis, vulvodynia, and fibromyalgia. So if you have any of those symptoms, boom, you need to think about oxalates. If you have joint pain, um, I would think about oxalates and investigate it. And there, you can look at oxalate markers on a Great Plains organic acid test. So it's a good one to check out. And there's some genetic things that can cause people to overproduce oxalates. Um, low B1B6 can be involved. Mold is a huge one. Mold species produce oxalates in our bodies as part of metabolism. Most people know of oxalates only through kidney stones. It's the most common form of kidney stone. But um, kidney stones are only a very small percentage of all oxalate issues. Most people are dealing with fibromyalgia, joint pain, and these urinary issues and things like vulvodynia. And then we have lectins, and lectins are very interesting. They are a certain kind of protein in, in different plants, particularly a lot of the new world fruits and vegetables like um, pumpkin, which also is high histamine and, and higher oxalate, but also they're in all the like the nightshades, tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants. And they're in a lot of grains. And it's one of the reasons why people have non-celiac gluten sensitivity or wheat sensitivity. So these lectins 
they, there are docks, little receptors on the outside of mast cells that the lectins dock into and stimulate the mast cells. <clears throat> and I was, even after I had cleaned up my histamines and oxalates, I was still having burning in my joints on a daily basis. And when I cut out the lectin foods, that made a huge, huge difference. But again, I don't like to reduce too many foods. Now, salicylates, um, there are a lot of people who have salicylate issues, especially if they have mold toxicity. And symptoms of salicylate sensitivity are going to include ringing in the ears and um, difficulty breathing. So salicylates can cause trouble breathing. And they can cause a number of other types of symptoms. A big sign is if somebody doesn't have tolerance to aspirin and it causes worse ringing in the ears and trouble breathing, then that's a sign of salicylate issues. The way it's linked with mold is that most mold toxins, so I've been doing this big research project with um, Dr. Neil Nathan and Emily Gibbler, we're working together on these detoxification pathways of mold so we can have really targeted protocols and we're working on getting this out to practitioners this year. So most mold toxins we found digging through stacks and stacks of research paper are detoxed by a pathway called glucuronidation. And it's the most important phase two detox pathway, but it's hardly being talked about. And I'm not sure why, uh, but it's, it's super critical. So it detoxes a lot of mold toxins, most medications, most different types of chemical toxins, things like vitamin A, vitamin D, and phenolic compounds, which salicylates are going to be involved in that. So we've got things like quercetin and curcumin and all of that go through this pathway as well. So, and so when we get into salicylate intolerance, then we've got to really watch taking herbs also and not loading that salicylate bucket up. So I think we need to be thinking about buckets for each of these categories or thinking about a big bucket in terms of inflammatory factors. Good thing is the salicylates we can handle. Um, salicylate intolerance, all of these we can improve, um, except I'm not exactly sure yet if we can improve lectin sensitivity. But we can improve the pathways that are breaking down salicylates with things like slowly, gradually increasing Epsom salts, slowly, gradually increasing other sulfur donors and supporting that glucuronidation pathway. And salicylates and oxalates often go hand in hand because the oxalates block the sulfur transporters and sulfur is also needed for salicylate breakdown. So this is kind of where we get something like mold toxicity. It's almost like this Jenga game. If you know that game with all the blocks and they stack up different ways and you take a thing out, well, on top of the mold block, you've got then all these detox pathways and on top of the detox pathways, all the things that go through those pathways and the mold really clogs up those pathways and affects the detox enzymes that are then involved in all these other processes. Mm -hmm. And my main species of mycotoxin was mycophenolic acid or MPA, which I know is actually used as a pharmaceutical drug to suppress um, the organs transplants from being rejected mm -hmm. when i saw my results i was like oh god like another thing to look into and work on after years and years and years of trying but actually in fact i think this is potentially a root the root cause um of many mm -hmm. that have been underlying all this time so i was actually in some ways 
happy that I had this other factor going on because I can do something about it and I am planning on moving in the next couple of weeks but with the coronavirus currently when we're recording this everything's been delayed even further so I'm just Mm -hmm. trying to take binders and support my liver and do as much as I can while I'm still in this home but my question was with the mycophenolic acid or some of these other mycotoxins in particular they're known to suppress immunity so how is it that they can cause this overactive immune response with mast cell activation syndrome? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So most of the mold toxins are dampening the immune response. But again, they're dampening specific immune cells. So there's lots of different types of immune cells. So they're going to dampen the immune cells that specifically kill off things like mold. And then the mast cells, remember, they're not the same as like the white blood cells and the phagocytes and the monocytes and these things that are to come in and kill off and engulf and actually get rid of the pathogen. So the mast cells are, the again, the guard of the castle gate. So the mast cells are ringing the alarm. Hey, hey, there's an issue here. There's a problem. And they're producing all these chemicals. And so we get this perfect storm of increased mast cell inflammation and decreased ability to kill off infections. And in in my own practice, mold toxicity, um, I screen everyone for. I don't um, go in with the lens that everybody has mold toxicity because they don't, but I screen everyone. The reason I do is because 70% of people in my practice have mold toxicity and it's huge and it's on the rise. And part of it is because electromagnetic fields, um, we believe, <clears throat> are increasing mold growth. And there have been a few studies. We need some more studies on this. So I heard uh, Jill Carnahan talk lately about the fungicidal paints and how they um, it was you know, probably a good idea. But what they're doing is they're only suppressing some of the less toxic molds and the slower growing super toxic molds like stachybotrys and chattanomium they're not suppressing and so now we're getting all of this additional growth they don't have any competition by the earlier less toxic molds that show up first and so we're getting these longer growth so there's a lot of things that are happening and then we're getting things like a valley fever where a soil mold that used to not be toxic is now mutated and jumped to humans and that could be related to climate could be related to Um, general world pollution and toxins, I don't know. But we've got a lot of increase in the last 20 years in mold toxicity, and it's really critical in people's health. Yeah, and just the way buildings are made these days, the materials that are used, they're trying to keep all of the the, air inside and keep the outdoor uh, outside, so there's no circulation going on, so there's no wonder. And the EMF thing really is um, true. Like I've been doing an experiment this past month Every night I turn off the Wi-Fi um, box and my sleep has, I'm actually dreaming and I didn't dream for years. Mm. And um, at first it was like a B6 deficiency, but I've been taking B6 ongoing. And then I realized, oh, I'm not dreaming anymore. And for the past month, I've dreamt every night after turning off the Wi-Fi box. Yeah, I thought it was a little bit of, um, it wasn't true at first, but then I've tried it and it happens every time. So it really is. And they've done experiments, haven't they, where they put the like a petri dish with mold at the side of a box and it explodes by like 600 times which is crazy yeah. 
Yeah, that was Dr. Klinghart. So yeah. I'm hoping we can get some um, more people to run those studies and then we'll have even more yeah. evidence there. I did a blog post, I'll send you the link to it. Um, really diving into the research for people who want to see that. And we've got absolute clear research and evidence that electromagnetic fields are creating mast cell degranulation, which degranulation means the mast cells are releasing their inflammatory molecules. So they're creating inflammation. And I can watch myself. I can watch my hands when I hold my phone. And if I hold it more than about five or 10 minutes, my hands start to swell and the battery side of the phone, mm -hmm. it has more electromagnetic radiation coming out on this side. And there's a lot of good shielding devices, a lot of good steps people can take, but it's an essential part of the healing plan to address that and work on it. Yeah. And the average person, when you talk about some of these things, they're like, there's no way that these things could be impacting your health. You're just a hypochondriac. It's all in your head. And just get on with it when in fact when you have all of these health issues it really does make a huge difference so i really want to emphasize that and i love i work primarily online so it's amazing that we can even do this call right now but i want to do the best i can at other times of the day to shield myself as much as possible when i i so i work online all day long and my practice is all remote and i have everything's hardwired my laptop is actually pushed away from me. I have a hardwired keyboard mm. here. I have a hardwired mouse and I have an EMF meter. Mm -hmm. And so I can actually use it to see what's making a difference. All the cords we ran initially into my desk. So you know, you have a little hole in the desk and mm -hmm. you run the cords up from that. So it's all neat and tidy. My legs were vibrating and then I had a meltdown. I just like, I couldn't control it. I just started crying. I had no reason to be crying and I was anxious off the charts and I'm not normally anxious anymore. I don't deal with anxiety anymore. So then we moved, I used my EMF meter and it was just a hot box under the desk and then I moved them on the other side. So there are ways to measure this and I'm always a skeptic. So I'm not a quick adopter of just anything. I want to see the proof. And when I heard Dr. Thea Herides talk about his studies he was doing on mice, and watching mast cell degranulation with the types of EMFs that are just from a computer speaker, which is way less than phones. And those mice were having immediate mast cell degranulation in their brains. That's when I started digging into it more deeply. Yeah, and I was just looking at your emails at the bottom of your emails, you've got your favorite brand for Defender Shields. So I will link that as well. I think that's a good idea because we can't avoid these things, but we can put steps in place to at least reduce exposure a little bit. Um, and on the subject of diet again and um, nutrient deficiencies potentially being a problem, can you talk about how you would approach someone who's like very, who's got into that very restricted place because they can't tolerate foods and they're trying to take food group after food group out and they're left with like 10 foods, they can't tolerate supplements, but they're still struggling health-wise? Like I know that it'd be a little bit different with everyone, but where would you start from that point? If you're down to 10 foods, or it, before you get down to 10 foods, I highly recommend you try not to take out all sulfur foods. So if you have SIBO and you're trying to reduce FODMAPs, there are low FODMAP sulfur foods like arugula, green onion tops, cabbage if you keep it under a cup. And why? Because the body or the mast cells need 
sulfur to produce heparin sulfate, and that's how they stabilize themselves. I got myself into trouble stopping all sulfur foods. Now, I was really reacting. I didn't know how to support those pathways, but if you're getting down like that, um, try to find some kind of sulfur support you can handle or do even like a, a teaspoon of Epsom salts in a foot soak or something to get some sulfur. We also need sulfur for detoxification. Now, what do you do? And I see that a lot with people who've been told they have a CBS variant and um, they should stop eating sulfur foods. That's not true. You can support the CBS enzyme. You don't have to stop eating sulfur foods and it makes people worse. If you're already down to 10 foods, find a healthcare practitioner who is understands these kinds of food sensitivities and understands biochemistry to help you get the foods back. So you don't want to keep losing foods. And a lot of times at that point, what we have to do are one, really look at the gut because there's almost always some significant gut issues at this point. And then we have to look at the different pathways that are involved. And I run a micronutrients right away on people that are down to that few foods and see what micronutrients we're low in. And I want to look at the blood levels and the inside the cell levels at the same time so I can get a really clear picture. There's a company called Vibrant that has a micronutrients panel that, that's really good. And there's some other companies that have micronutrients panels like that. But you're looking for both the blood and the cell levels. And then because what happens is we keep taking foods out, we get more nutrient deficient, and then we don't have the nutrients to support the pathways. We don't have B1 and B6 to support the oxalate pathways. We need vitamin C, bioavailable copper, and we need B6 for diamine oxidase. And then to break down salicylates, we need things like supports for glucuronidation, supports for sulfation, so these different processes. So then it takes interventions to get them back on board most of the time. Sometimes it takes things, sometimes the food responses aren't biochemical. They are, they're on the psycho neuro endocrino immunological axis, which is a big word that means the connection between the mind, the immune system, the hormone system and the nervous system. And that's what I did my master's research on was that in mass cell activation syndrome. And our thoughts, it's not that it's in your all in your head, it's not. It's that the mast cells have a direct line of communication from our thoughts. So if I start thinking, and I can I've done experiments and watched, if I start thinking, I'm going to get flared up. I'm going to get flared up. This is really bad. I can't eat this food. This food's going to make me sick. I can watch my hands start to swell. I just had some hand swelling from that. And if, but if I go, I use this affirmation a lot. So this is an affirmation that I put together from two methods from Dr. Bob Miller and Dr. Neil Nathan. And I go, I wonder how I, Beth, became comfortable, relaxed, safe, and healthy. And I wonder how you, Beth, became comfortable, relaxed, safe, and healthy. And I wonder how she, Beth, became comfortable, relaxed, safe, and healthy. And I do that 10 times. And I, just watching that, now my hands, the swelling came back down. And so 
a lot of times we have to in, implement these kinds of practices, especially when the food intolerances are related to that access. So that's something I do with all my clients. And I tell people that the work that takes to heal is about a third working on your foods and supplements and really targeting that for you. It's about a third cleaning up your environment from mold and EMFs and making sure you have clean air, clean water. And then a third is this parasympathetic balance. Now, if somebody has had childhood traumas, then it's a quarter, a quarter, and the parasympathetic is half of the healing. It's, it's crucial. And so there's so many good programs, uh, really like a type of breathing where you match your inhale and exhale the length of time. That's been proven to be very effective. Lots of different options there. Yeah, and the one that I've um, looked into and I've, I've ordered it and paid for it and I'm not going to start it just yet until I move is the DRNS. Mm -hmm. Do you use that success, successfully with your clients? I do. I give three guide, guidelines with it though. I tell people, if you have chronic fatigue and mass activation syndrome, you do not have to do it an hour a day, hmm. 15 minutes, 10 minutes is fine. If you start getting tired, or you're feeling brain fogged or fried, that's your system saying it's time to stop. So they really push to do it an hour a day. And if you've got these conditions, you don't want to overtax your system. So we've got to move the system slowly. So 10 to 15 or 20 minutes, whatever feels the best for somebody is going to be more effective than pushing an hour a day. That's actually going to be slower. Uh, the other one is that um, they do talk about, don't talk about your symptoms. And it is important to not ruminate on your symptoms. But I've had some people come in and, into an appointment and say, well, I can't talk about my symptoms because of DNRS. And I say, well, there's a value sometimes in being able to discuss what's going on. So just using common sense there. And um, I forgot the third one. Yeah, the thing that I sometimes see is um, people just looking at the DRNS and the mindset and the meditation, and they're trying to overcome their symptoms just with that. And for some people, it does work. But what if they're still yes. living in a moldy environment and they're eating all of these histamine-rich foods that are sensitive exactly. to? They're kind of tricking their brain to think that everything's fine. That's the third. So the third one is sometimes people get the impression that you can heal everything in the body with DNRS or these other related programs. There's a Gupta program is another mm -hmm. really good program that I have people do. And you, it, it is essential but if you have biochemistry pathways that are not working and you have mold toxicity it's not going to clean up the mold toxicity and i did this to myself because um, going into yoga therapy and being really intense in that being a spiritual seeker and somebody did a lot of emotional development self-development I bought into the new age movement that you could clear everything with your mind. And then I felt like an absolute abject failure when it didn't happen. And I was meditating three hours a day. If I could have meditated my way out, I would have. And I was a good meditator and I mm. taught meditation. But um, we, we have to remember those pieces. And, and so I give everybody those guidelines. But, but they're huge and those are great programs. I really, really like them. 
And then if people just have absolutely no budget, there's a YouTube channel called The Honest Guys, and they have all kinds of lovely, beautiful meditations, and they're all free. And so I ask people to do a breathing practice. I have them do DNRS or Gupta program. They get to choose usually if, um, if they have the budget for that. And then I ask them to do some kind of guided meditations and an affirmation. So with the food sensitivities we are just talking about, if people are reacting to everything, doing this stuff to calm their system down, and we could talk about just that for all day, but doing these things to calm the system down, doing an affirmation before eating and saying, you can take that affirmation and, and change it any way at all and say, this food is nourishing and healing, but I like it posed as a question. So I wonder how this food became so nourishing and healing for me. It's very different than when you just say it as a statement. Because if you say the statement, the mind, the subconscious can argue with you. Yeah. But if you pose it as a question like it already happened, then um, there's a little more openness that comes. Yeah, it's a really good tip. I've never heard it explained like that. And I do promote and tell my clients to think of the benefits and the gratitude for the food on your plate. Think of how it's going to help you heal. I love that perspective shift that you have. And it could literally be the most perfect meal for you, the most nutrient dense, organic food. But if you go into that meal thinking you're going to develop hives, get diarrhea later on, you probably will. And it is that psychoneural immunology response. Yeah. And people just get afraid after a while. They just get afraid that everything's going to make them react. And that's a common response and it's a normal response. We just have to disrupt it somehow. Agreed. And the last few questions, I'm just conscious of the time, um, would be just quickly on hormone imbalances and how that could also be linked to histamine and um, mast cell activation. Yes, this is another one of the seven root causes I talk about. And what, so what we see frequently, we have all these things like mold toxicity or chronic infections or chronic stress, different things, the hormones start to turn out of balance. And histamine raises estrogen. So if we have excess histamine, because we have mast cell activation syndrome, because we have histamine intolerance, we're gonna get higher estrogen levels. Estrogen then stimulates the body to release more histamine and we get a downward cycle that way. And the other thing that'll happen is even if women have low hormone levels, but they have more estrogen than progesterone, it's still going to stimulate that cycle. So we're talking about estrogen dominance in terms of the ratio estrogen to progesterone, not high estrogen mm-hmm. only. On the other side, though, progesterone is mast cell stabilizing, as is cortisol. So when we're looking at hormones, we want to make sure that we're supporting progesterone, we're supporting cortisol. Something I really look at with my clients, and I often see cortisol come back at the very low end of the range or below the range. And then there's just not not enough there to manage the inflammatory response. Yeah, I see that as well. Or histamine's like very high and cortisol's really high as well to try and bring that down. I sometimes see that extreme uh, as well. And for those listening, if your symptoms are cyclical, so you notice around ovulation the week before your period, or maybe at one of these big transitional Um, times of our female life like menopause or um, even perimenopause sometimes after childbirth if your symptoms get worse at that point it could be 
linked back to histamine, those cramps, that PMS, um, insomnia, uh, itchy skin as well, acne for me. I was like, I was just blaming it on um, hormones the whole time. And in some way it was, but if I looked further down, the histamine, the mold, the mast cells were all driving that hormone imbalance. Hormones are like the followers. They're usually not the ones to go out of whack. Uh, they're usually driven by something deeper. So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I also see people um, sometimes have trouble during ovulation. Yeah. And so we'll see a spike in symptoms there. And because people are thinking about either when their period starts or when it ends, they're often not thinking about when the ovulation is happening, but that might be a spike also. Yeah. So keep a journal, um, symptom journal to try and figure this out for yourself because everyone is a little bit different, even with the foods, as we've spoken about, there are so many um, variations with diets that could be useful for you. And then last question, Beth, um, I know that your practice and your um, wait list is full until like 2021 and there's no surprise there with the work that you're doing. But if someone wanted to get on your wait list or get in touch with you, was the best place for them to find you online? Yeah, the best resources. So website, I have lots of free resources for people at mastcell360.com. So M-A-S-T as in Tom. C is in Charlie, ELL360.com. And there's a blog there. There's lots of information. If you join the email list, um, there, and you can get the root causes report there, so you'll see a pop-up, or you can go to masscell360.com slash free report. And if you join the email list, then I'm going to make an announcement when we have openings. We may have them open a little earlier than um, 2021. So we're going to see what happens in terms of of the practice and um and then open up as soon as we possibly can i've got some very specific mast cell supports coming out this year with a, a new supplement line to help support people i'm always doing blog posts i do facebook lives um, right now i'm doing them on mondays at 2 p.m eastern and um, you can get the information about those on if the Facebook page. So just go to Facebook, type in Mast Cell 360, it'll pop up. And then I've got a book coming out um, later this year. So fingers crossed, it's going to be out before the end of the year. And it's going to really st step people through this approach and how I work with people. Because there's no training for practitioners out there. I'm working on that also. So I'm mm -hmm. going to have some training available for practitioners that's going to be a little further down the road. But I've had to cobble all this together myself and I want to get this out so people know what to do. And this isn't taught in medical schools. It's not even taught in functional medicine programs. Um, so lots going to be coming with education, but there's already a ton of stuff right there on that website. There really is so much information. It's like a gold mine of information on there. Mm -hmm. And I'll be the first one to sign up to your um, online course and ordering your book because I am a big fan of your work and I really appreciate mm -hmm. it. So yeah, oh, thank I you for joining us. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I'm going to start um, master classes for people. So that's going to be monthly. And that'll be, there'll be stuff on the website about it. I'm going to announce it on the newsletter and on the Facebook page. And that'll be a monthly low cost. People can join live. They're going to learn about a section. I'm going to do a poll to see what people are most interested in. And then that choose the topics. But they'll learn about a specific, specific topic. And they can ask questions live. 
and then the replays will be available for people too and that we're going to keep the cost really low on those yeah that's such a good idea i'm looking forward to that and i was so excited to chat with you i know we've had this in the calendar for months now um and yeah thank you for your time beth i know that you're super busy so i really appreciate it and all that you do thank you so much i just love that we can come together like this and i really appreciate you having me on I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you would love a free copy of my hormone-friendly recipes guide, please leave me a rating and review and I will email you a copy as a thank you gift. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review and send it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. This guide contains delicious gluten, dairy, grain and refined sugar-free recipes and all the meals contain specific hormone superfoods. Don't worry, there are no boring salad recipes included. Come and say hi over on Instagram at Viva Natural Health as I share a ton of free content every day and you can get to know more about me and how I stay hormonally healthy. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk for my blog and many free guides which cover everything from clearing acne to gut health and hair loss. If you're ready to identify and address the root causes of your hormonal issues, whether that's acne, PMS, PCOS, hair loss or problematic periods, Take that first step today and apply for an enrollment call on my website. We'll use this call to discuss the steps that you need to take in order to achieve hormonal harmony and how I could help you get there. See you back here next week for another episode.